Welcome to the MyLifeInConcert.com podcast. I'm your host, Various Artists, and please join me as I travel back and revisit every live show I've seen from 1975 to the present. This is the first time you've toured, and why have you decided to go out on the road now? <laughs> I need to get my chops together, which I'm doing. Marianne Faithful burst onto the world stage in 1964 at the height of the pop 60s, creating a signature hit via her bittersweet rendition of the Mick Jagger Keith Richards number As Tears Go By. During the mid 60s, Marianne released a number of albums and singles alternating between folk and pop styles, sometimes just plain old folk pop, and also became Jagger's girlfriend, with the two of them becoming one of Rock's first tabloid couples. She split with Jagger at the start of the 70s, and the rest of the decade was pretty rough for her, before re emerging in the last months of 1979 after signing with Island Records and then releasing one of the all time great comeback albums ever broken english and she hasn't quit since now broken english did particularly well here in canada hitting the top 30 and eventually going platinum indeed marianne had always done well here in canada with her initial hit version of as tears go by peaking at number two versus nine in the uk and 28 in the u.s when Faithful released her follow-up to Broken English in 1981, Dangerous Acquaintances, it just missed the Canadian top ten. So when she released her third Island album, A Child's Adventure, in 1983, it was time for her to do a proper tour, and it made sense for the tour to start here in Canada, do a small tour of Canada first, where her records were particularly popular. So, where did... Marianne launch this Canadian jaunt. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Various Artists. This is the MyLifeInConcert.com podcast, and please join me for episode 28, where I jump in the time machine and head back for Marianne Faithful's debut Canadian show at a pack to way beyond capacity bar here in the Forest City, overflowing with a heavily refreshed and excited audience of faithful fanatics on an unforgivably sweltering summer night as I look back on concert number 21, Marianne Faithful at Fryfogles here in London, Ontario, Canada, Monday, August 15th, 1983 and this episode is called dangerous acquaintances also the ticket price was twenty dollars now that's fifty three dollars in canadian money in 2022 greetings dear listeners both new and returning and thanks for tuning in I'd like to remind listeners to check out the MyLifeInConcert.com website and blog chronicling this and many other shows between 1975 and now with my original blog entry that I initially published over on Open Salon back up in 2012. Uh, that's up on the website. And for this and many other shows, there's uh, uh, the overview of the show and my life and the time, but always there's extra information about the shows that I maybe don't go into the podcast. There's often photos, and there's a photo, one photo of the show, and I'll get back to that photo a little bit later on uh, up on the blog, as well as links, the original ticket, uh, ephemera, and related Spotify playlists and more. And on the topic of Spotify playlists, uh, you can hear my Spotify playlists. Can I say Spotify playlists more? 
No, I don't think I even want to. Anyway, under my various artists' username, but it's just as easy to search for mylifeinconcert.com because I usually put that at the end of the title, or M-L-I-C followed by a prompt as all my playlists start that way, or simply follow me on Spotify. And uh, for this episode, I have two playlists up, uh, M-L-I-C, Prompt, Marianne Faithful, Time Span, C-90, 1964 to 2021, a cassette length overview of Marianne Faithful's whole career, cherry picking the best of each LP or era from 1964 to 2021. And I'm starting to put up some of these time span playlists that go across an artist's career who's kind of had a bit of a long career um, and not so much all the greatest hits but kind of the best of every moment as they go along and choosing the cassette length because you know back in the day we used to make a lot of uh, compilation cassettes of an artist and it's a really good length to sort of use as a uh, limit shall we say to what you put on <clears throat> and then there's also M-L-I-C, Marianne Faithful, Dangerous Acquaintances, VA's Fave Tracks, 1964 to 2021. And that's more of an in-depth box set length uh, compilation spanning her whole career. Also, please like, follow, and subscribe on our Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as our YouTube channel, which feature not only the podcast, but live footage from shows that uh, Kabbalah and I have shot along the way, as well as vintage clips. And remember to hit that notification bell for new episodes. Now, back to the gig. Now, this show has got to be one of the three or four best live gigs I've I ever saw here in London, Ontario. One of the best I ever saw, but here in London, it's one of the top three or four. And at the beginning of the episode, you heard a small clip from an interview I did with Marianne Faithful in 1989 uh, on the occasion of her returning here to the Forest City to play another splendid gig at Kipling's, which was in the south end of the city. And when my series hits that time, mid to late 80s to early 90s, there's going to be a lot of shows that I saw at Kipling's that are going to be featured uh, in the series. So anyway, I got to interview her by phone. I was a CHRW DJ for many years, and I was at this time. And I interviewed her by phone in advance of the show. And later on in the episode, I'm going to be playing that four-minute interview that I did, which initially aired on CHRW. It was chunked down from the original. I'll talk more about that at the time, but that's coming up a bit later. I was also lucky enough to go backstage after that Kipling's gig and meet her personally personally. And she was so lovely, both during the interview and in person. And I'll eventually be doing a full entry and episode on that show as concert number 63, Blazing Away, Marianne Faithful at Kipling's London, Ontario, Canada, Wednesday, November 1st, 1989. Uh, of course, it's going to take a while to get there because I'm only at uh, concert number 21 now. And admittedly, uh, I have had less episodes up this year and that's going to continue through early next year. Just I, my life's so busy and I'm working and back in school again. Um, so haven't lost enthusiasm for the podcast series, just really busy life. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to do more next year. Um, and of course, by the time I get to 88, 89 and 90, those were years that were particularly 
packed with live shows. Um, with her second show here happening in between uh, two Toronto concerts, uh, the Water Boys at the Concert Hall and Paul McCartney at Skydome. So there's lots and lots and lots coming up down the road in mylifeinconcert.com. Um, so anyway, as for Marianne and this gig, well, first a bit about her and my fandom. So Marianne Faithful has occupied mental real estate in my consciousness since I was but a wee lad. Uh, I grew up in a house that was saturated with the music of the Rolling Stones. And sometimes you're around something and it touches you or doesn't. There's other things that were going on in my life that didn't really have an impact on me. But as I've discussed in many episodes, music did. And I've talked about the Beatles, but also the Rolling Stones. I'm a lifelong, massive Stones fan. And they made a very, very big impact. Uh, my elder siblings were playing their records a lot, especially my brother. But also the first album I ever owned, um, and I discussed this in the Keith Richards episode, episode 23, was Out of Our Heads, the North American version, which I actually prefer to the British version. It's one of those rare things where the I think the North American version is better. But I got that as my first album from a visiting UK visiting aunt and uncle. Um, and the first, one of the first singles I ever owned, which I still have, uh, Dandelion um, by the Rolling Stones. And again, I've got a picture of that up on uh, the Keith Richards episode about uh, that I put up earlier this year when I saw him in Detroit in 1988. And the Stones themselves, by the way, will be coming up down the line uh, the first night of the Steel Wheels tour at CNE Stadium. What an incredible show that was. And seventh row center seats. So sweet, sweet show, way down the line. But anyway, the Stones were always around... I was always following Stones-related headlines and hijinks, which were, you know, all the time in the late 60s and early 70s, when they're sort of at the height of their uh, bad boy, uh, sort of living that all out, period. And of course, Mick and Marianne were a couple, and their exploits uh, in their time as a couple in the late 60s always got a profusion of ink in the press, and of course, the most famous being the Redlands incident at Keith Richards' house and the fur rug and all that. You know all this. Uh, of course, she had first burst on the scene recording that version of As Tears Go By that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had written. Now, they weren't a couple at the time, but became that a little bit later on. But it wasn't just that, particularly in the UK. She had a number of hit singles in the mid-60s and released um, a series of albums around that time. And then, but kind of took up with Mick Jagger and it was her career sort of faded for a while. Um, but still, she was um, a very striking presence. I liked her records. And um, when the Stones' Sticky Fingers came out, Sister Morphine is on there, and I can't remember how. She's credited now. She wasn't at the time, but we all, I can't remember, everyone sort of knew that she had written that. And in fact, there's a, a famous quote from Marianne Faithful, um, and, and I quote, I've been living off the royalties to Sister Morphine for 10 years, which is really bizarre. Don't tell me drugs don't pay. Um, so anyway, but by the time Sticky Fingers came out, she and Mick were no more. They were long estranged. Her music career and her acting career, which had taken off at one point, this was all in the past now. The 1970s were not kind 
to Marianne, a time marked by her debilitating heroin use, alcoholism, anorexia nervosa, and shifting around from squat to squat in Soho. So not a good time for her. However, she did pop up on the radar in the 70s in a few ways. Most memorably for me was when she performed with David Bowie as part of his 1984 show, which was shot at the marquee. It was sort of the last gasp of the spiders after um, the final gig. Um, I think it was his last show with Mick Ronson. And uh, she is on that. And the two of them do this kind of off kind of rough uh, take on Sonny and Cher's I Got You Babe, but it has a lot of charm. And she appeared wearing a backless nun's dress, although we didn't see the backless part on television. And later in the decade, she was in the news when um, the Sex Pistols movie, the proposed Sex Pistols movie that never got made, Who Killed Bambi, which was going to be directed by sexploitation legend Russ Meyer, who made one of my favorite movies of all time, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And it was written by Roger Ebert, unbelievably, who actually posted the script up on his website not too long before he died. Well, she was supposed to play Sid Vicious's mother in the movie, and there was going to be this made-to-shock uh, incest scene, and she got a lot of press from that. Well, that was pretty much it. Now, in terms of music, she did put out an album in 1976 called Dreaming My Dreams, and that album and the song were big hits in Ireland, but didn't really do anything anywhere else. Um, and I really liked that album. I heard it later, which I'll get to. Um, but she had also cut an album in 1971 called Rich Kids Blues, and that didn't get released until the mid 80s and that was it was actually a package together put out through castle communication a double album with rich kid blues as the first disc and um dream in my dreams is the second and i didn't realize what any of this was i just buy it bought it at the time there was no liner notes but i really liked the albums but i wasn't sure like where when and where were they from that sort of thing but that was pretty much it for her recording in the 70s, just the one album and then the other that was released later until Broken English. Before then, it would more she'd been more in the where are they now file. Um, but again, as the decade lurched to a close, I started reading these stories in the British press. I was an enemy nut and that Marianne Faithful had signed Island Records. She had recorded a new album. She had been sort of reinvigorated by punk's anger and energy and this new record was supposed to tap into this more contemporary new wave punkish sound whatever and it, it sounded interesting and the process uh, attracted curiosity but it seemed as interesting as it was to actually likely come to fruition it sounded like another one of these things where it sounded almost like this novelty that wasn't going to happen so Virtually no one was prepared for the game-changing tour de force that was Broken English when it appeared in October 1979. Arriving on the cusp of the 70s, morphing into the 80s, Broken English was not only leagues superior to anything anyone had anticipated, but was a surprise international hit. Uh, as I mentioned, it did particularly well here in Canada, going gold and then platinum. Now, up 
on the site for the blog entry, I have a series of five albums, well, a picture of five albums, Broken English and four other covers, that for me sort of epitomized that moment, sort of like the December 79, January 1980, January, February 1980, that decade morph. And there's five albums there that just about everyone I knew at that time owned and was listening to. And that's this one, The Clashes, London Calling, the debuts from The Specials and The Pretenders, and XTC's Drums and Wires. I think you could throw the jam setting suns in there. And earlier on in the podcast, I kind of got out of this. Um, I talk about sort of music or albums of the era I was listening to and broken English. It's just a soundtrack for that period, but all through the winter, spring, summer, it's just, everyone was listening to it. And so I was thinking of other albums around that time that encapsulate that period, especially maybe a bit later, like spring. When I think of spring 1980, there's two that immediately come to mind. And one is PIL's metal box. Um, and Keith Levine just died. So, so sad. That album made such a huge impact. Wobbles, great bass playing and Levine's guitar, that and the other big post-punk moment, the gang of fours entertainment. I played, oh, I've always listened to them, but they're indelibly linked with that spring as was hearing Joy Division's transmission. And then the closer album later in the summer, also wires one, five, four, incredible third, like trippy, uh, third album, The Ramones, End of the Century, uh, uh, Squeeze, Argy Bargy, and then a little bit later on, um, Bob Marley's Uprising. Also, the Cramps songs, The Lord Taught Us. So that sort of early, mid, end of the 70s, early, mid, 1980, uh, that's kind of some of the chunks of the soundtrack of the time for me. I also have a playlist of what I was listening to in 1980. And I've got that up on the site. I'm doing a series as I go through for each year. And this was uh, my life. MLIC prompt VA's 1980, the soundtrack to my year. Anyway, it's there if you're interested. Now, as for Broken English, it was both raw and sleek. And it was completely modern. It was a difficult to classify genre blend. Usually those are the sort of albums I'm drawn to. Uh, the pull from punk new wave, disco, rock, blues, and reggae, presaging that um, hybrid nature that was emblematic of a lot of the best early 80s music. And Gone was Faithful's soft schoolgirl serenade from the 60s, replaced by an altogether more expressive, gravelly, cigarette and whiskey-soaked instrument that was knowing, world-weary, and weather-beaten, and fit her new music like a glove. Now, even though she only had a partial hand in writing three of the LPs, eight tracks, Broken English came off as a distinctly personal expression. Each song was carefully selected, resulting in an autobiographical work that reflected Faithful's life, struggles, and interests. And it, you know, it really ran the gamut, not just in terms of a genre blend, but also the topic matter um, and what was included in it, especially some of the covers, they're just amazing. It's got the definitive interpretation of, of Shel Silverstein's The Ballad of Lucy Jordan 
And then there's her cover of John Lennon's Working Class Hero. And of course, Plastic Ono Band. It's, it's on my list of my favorite albums, also on the site, top 15 and the short list. One of my favorite albums ever and one of Lennon's best songs. Her cover, though, is so amazing. It's one of my favorite cover versions anyone's ever done of a song. And of course, like the interesting topics in the songwriting just go right through the album, you know, starting with the title track, which she co-wrote. Um, and it's uh, about the late German journalist come terrorist, Ulrich Meinhof of the Bader Meinhof gang, uh, the RAF. Um, and if you were a person around in the seventies, my age, of course, you knew this was big. They were in the news all the time. It was a very terrifying time in that sense to her own heroin addiction, which is addressed in what's the hurry. Uh, but probably the most, not probably the most controversial track on the album was a sexually explicit, um, song with the lyrics by poet Heathcote Williams, um, about sexual jealousy and anger. Why'd you do it? Uh, with very, very explicit language, um, as well as just kind of her, her version of brain drain, which she didn't re reverse the gender and just this very sort of whatever delivery that just suits it perfectly. just the right attitude. So aesthetically and thematically, it's a perfect album. And again, it's also one of my, on my, I, I, when I was on open, salon years ago where I started this, the blog part, uh, somebody did a call out for people to list their top 15 albums and talk about them personally. And I did that and then made a short, like long short list. There's about another 60 albums. And again, broken English is one of them. It's just as long as I'm alive, I will listen to this album. So of course the problem with making such a seminal definitive album is how do you follow it? Well, on one hand, it's tough to do, but she's done it because she has had an absolutely extraordinary career. And it's dawned on me recently, she never made a bad album. She's never made a bad album. She's been recording fairly regularly since 1964. There's some gaps in there, but she's had a recording and performing career the whole time. And well, most of the whole time, she's just never made a bad album. Now there's a couple that are very much for special moments, like her new one, the recitation LP, she walks in beauty or the seven deadly sins, but they're still excellent albums. Even if you kind of have to be in a certain mood. Um, and while I followed her through the eighties in the nineties, I wasn't listening to her as much, but kind of came back in the two thousands and really came back in the 2010s and I've gone back to listen to some albums I've missed and just my respect for her as an artist has just grown and grown. It's incredible, incredible catalog. And that extends too to her very early pop album, well, folk and pop, but more, more pop from the 60s, um, which they're not on the level of her later recordings, but they're good. They're really good. And there's some great tracks on them. And actually in that 1989 interview, I asked her what she thought about that, what she thought about her pop material. So I'm going to play this little segment. The whole interview is coming later. Now, as I'll talk later, I don't have the master tapes for this interview. So all I have is the 
edited um, and mixed interview that they aired, which was chopped down. A lot of stuff was lost. Uh, but anyway, at one point, they put a song in the middle. They put his tears go by. So I've tried to edit around that, especially putting this up on YouTube. I don't want to get hit for any copyright stuff. But anyway, here here's what she had to say about her early recordings in 1989. How do you regard your early pop hits from the 1960s today? I like it. I mean, it's not stuff I would do now, except tears go by. I, I mean, I never kept my records and I never listened to them. I just made them and then they went out and I've never sort of held on to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did happen to hear them and I, I came away feeling like, well, it was a lot of work, you know. Some of it was all right. Mm-hmm. I, I could see that that it was quite good and it was okay, you know. Mm-hmm. It was rather sweet. It was of its time. Yes. So... That interview took place on the occasion of her second trip here to London, which I was talking about at Kipling's. But of course, she had played here first in 1983, the show that we're looking at in this episode. And as I said, it was her first stop on this tour. And fortuitously, she played my local watering hole slash second home during 1983, Freifogel's, one of the greatest bars that London, Ontario ever saw. Now... Her appearance here at Fry's was just 10 days after I had attended that third and final police picnic uh, at CNE Stadium in Toronto. And of course, that was the last podcast, episode 27. If you get a chance, check that out. It was a fun one. Uh, Noel and Phil dropped by and shared their memories. It was a really fun interview. Um, but certainly... This gig, this Marianne Faithful gig, was like the big, big buzz of the summer. Well, this and the John Cale show, which I looked at in uh, episode 26, but like everyone was just about having kittens when it was announced that she would be coming. Now, in that period between Broken English and this gig, Marianne had released two more Island albums, 1981's Dangerous Acquaintances, of which I have named this episode after, and you'll see why a little bit later, and 1983's A Child Adventure, which she was touring on uh, when I saw her. That was the new album, and she was promoting it. Now, a lot of people feel that the follow-ups were weak, and they were sort of um, criticized in that regard. They didn't have their predecessors uh, sort of like topical bite or sonic bite. And it's hard to, f- it's hard to sort of follow broken English, but I got to say, I love these albums and I'd gone for a period, not listening to them. And then when I went back to them, they, they may not be the equal of broken English, but who cares? They're great albums. I, I just love these albums. I still enjoy listening to them so much. Um, and they, again, they perform very, very well here. Uh, Dangerous Acquaintances just missed the top 10 here in Canada. And A Child's Adventure uh, was in the top 50. So everyone I knew was pretty amped about her coming. And in the London Free Press uh, review by Peter Laurie, I'll be reading that later on. And that's on the website as well. He mentions that, quote, advanced tickets for the Freifogel show sold out in two days. And a good six hours before Faithful came on stage, there were fans lined up outside the bar to get in. Now, I'll be, again, reading the whole thing later. Now, as for me, I seem to recall going for dinner before the gig um, with my brother-in-law and my sister and possibly Lady B. And I think we went to 
was it called Angelo's? It was an Italian food place that they made the best Ponzerottis. We used to go there for Ponzerotti all the time on Clarence Street. I think it's Angelo's. I think it's Angelo's. And I think we went there and I think Lady B was with us. So I think we ate and then wandered over after. And we got there sort of mid-evening, um, shortly after the openers, who were this rockabilly band, the wide gu Wise Guys, they had left the stage, so I didn't see the openers. Now, I saw Fry Fogel's. It was a long, narrow bar. Um, I, I saw it really packed many times, but this was the most packed I ever recall seeing it. They literally had to shoehorn people into this den of human saturation. Now, on this note of the club being this packed, like it, it was fun because, you know, everyone was there. I'll talk about this more in a moment. But when I think back to this night, oh my goodness, um, when that tragic fire happened in that packed Rhode Island nightclub in 2003, um, where great white were playing and they, their pyrotechnics were set off and it caught stuff on fire and the club burned down and a hundred people were killed and hundreds more were injured. Awful. When that happened, the first thing that came to my mind, the first thing was I thought of this Marianne faithful gig. Um, cause I've thought about this through the years. Like if anything had gone wrong that night. You would have had a lot of dead people. It was just, it was almost double the capacity. Now, luckily the night went off without a hitch, but it's one of those things at the time it's way, Hey, where now I don't think I'd be so comfortable in that level of sardineness in an enclosed, uh, location that even has nothing to do with COVID and all that. But I have thought back to that and it's a little disturbing to think about. This also meant that forays to the bar and back required strategic navigation and optimum patience on this steamingly hot August night. Uh, but I, as I said, it was fun. Um, uh, Phil wasn't there, unfortunately, but and pretty much almost everyone I knew was there. Everyone was there that night and everyone was very high spirited. Um, and so, you know, you, it took you ages to get to the bar. It took you to ages to get served while you were there, but you were spending most of your time talking with everyone because you were crammed in and you tended to be standing next to someone you knew anyway. Um, and you'd be having these very casual, but exaggerated exchanges, uh, very, very inebriated, casual, exaggerated exchanges with everyone you ran into. Oh my God, people were shit faced on this night. Oh man. Everyone was just right off their tits because everyone had arrived early. Everyone staked out their place. Everyone started drinking and everyone was in super high spirits. So uh, like on this night, of course, I'm sure we would have herbalized up before going in and had a couple of beers. So it had a nice buzz going, but it was too hard to drink a lot because it was hard to get served. And so we had a nice buzz on, but I think we were... For me, I was, for a change, in um, relatively um, buzzed but muted spirits, but just everyone was so wiped out. Whoa. And 
so you know they had hours to drink and imbibe and ingest and and whatever so when marianne faithful came out on the stage i would say that the crowd erupted in jubilation <laughs> rather than just sort of did a few woohoos uh is uh, erupting in jubilation is probably the best phrase to describe the packed partying patrons passionate welcome for faithful when she arrived now the free press writer's observation that monday's crowd seemed almost out of place with their screams and shouts when paired against a mellowing faithful uh is an accurate one although i'm not sure that out of place is fair given that the enthusiasm was genuine and <laughs> fueled by just everyone just being really cut um but still <laughs> there was this amusing contrasting gap between a lot of the largely mid-tempo sedate dynamics of the music versus the crowd's overly demonstrative party time response but you know she didn't seem to mind one iota remember she'd seen everything and has seen everything and i remember her she kind of seemed to take it all in with an impression of cheerful bemusement entertained by the sea of barstool love as Lori from the repress from the free press put it she quote seemed content with a smile now there is one picture of the gig i've been able to come by and it's up on the site and it was taken by the late linda moran um and she had posted it up and i didn't really know linda back in the day but we had just started communicating on facebook and private messaging and we were having some interesting conversations about the scene back in the day and when she posted this i asked can i put this up on my website and she said no problem and i was actually going to speak to her i had talked to her about interviewing her for this show and shockingly she passed she passed away it was so sad um well i would have loved to have spoken with her about this show and i put the message out to people um who might be interested in being interviewed and it was a combination of several people getting back saying i was there but don't remember anything <laughs> gee i wonder why or they were but they just didn't feel comfortable being interviewed um but anyway um thanks to the late linda moran for letting me put up the photo and you can see there you kind of get an idea of how packed it is and also another person who has passed is my brother-in-law who many of you may have known as sparky back in the day and we had reconnected um about a decade ago and we had a number of chats this is when i was writing the original blog so i spoke with him when i was writing the blog entry for open salon in 2012 and this is what he remembered about the gig he said he reminded me of her decidedly casual stage attire on this oppressively humid night composed of a cut-off blue jeans and an ill-fitting black tank top and as he added those pendulous breasts and in linda's photo you can see that he's right he remembered exact he remembered what he was what she was wearing exactly so um well done well done sparky and um or rick as he would have been known to others as for me uh what's burnt into my brain is faithful up at that mic not really moving a whole lot but she didn't have a whole lot of room anyway and 
sandwiched between these musicians and all this equipment, holding the mic in her right hand and keeping time by repeatedly slapping her thigh to the rhythm, like her left thigh with her left hand, keeping the rhythm through the show. And you can see that in the photo too. As for the set itself, unsurprisingly, Broken English uh, launched the set, and there was a lot of selections from its namesake LP featured prominently throughout the night. The churning, syncopated opening rift of Why'd You Do It triggered walls of hurrahs. And, of course, her version of Working Class Hero, John Lennon's Working Class Hero, concluded with Faithful looking upwards and shouting something to the effect of the way I remembered as she said, that was for you, Johnny, or something like that. Although Sparky remembered it more, her dedicating it to Johnny, wherever you may be. The, re it's, the reality is probably somewhere in the middle. However, the number I most recall, and for the wrong reason, is when she did the Ballad of Lucy Jordan, <clears throat> because they just couldn't get the synths which is the main part of the so song in sync with the rest of the band, resulting in an off kilter performance that never really properly gelled. But that was the only track that I recall not working. Now, of course she was touring a child's adventure. So that album was represented uh, very well. Uh, and I particularly remember the smoky languid reflective Times square coming off as really well performed but I really remember it as an example of the songs uh, of the evenings in congruous moments of artist audience dissimilitude because <laughs> you have this somber, delicate song. And of course that was, that was kind of the one that had been the single. So a lot of people knew it and she performed it. And as she's coming to the end of this, you know, very soft, reflective tune, the response is something like this. She just seemed genuinely pleased throughout it all, grinning and taking in the public adulation. I got the impression she was really enjoying herself up there. She looked and sounded terrific and together, and that sort of benefited her public persona from the early 80s, which emphasized that she was now cleaned, all cleaned up and her life was harnessed. And of course, as I was, well, as I was to find out shortly thereafter, i.e. the next day, um, that mantra was more marketing message, uh, than reality. I was, as I was privy to some backstage info via one of the organizers that made it clear that faithful, um, that really wasn't the case, um, with faithful. Um, and I'm not going to be gossipy and indiscreet and I'll just simply put what she herself has said many, many times long ago is that she still really wasn't in a great place. And it was a fall that she took in the mid eighties down the stairs and a broken jaw that really kind of triggered her life turning around, but you know, whatever, you know, we all have our stuff, you know, and whatever was going on in her life off stage and performance was great. She was amazing. Just, just amazing. So now I'm going to read the London free press review that was written by Peter Laurie. And again, I've got it up 
uh, on the blog for you to read the original article. So the article is entitled Marianne's Faithful Fans Jam into Freifogels uh, by Peter Laurie. Why Marianne Faithful would first pick a London bar for her first Canadian performance is certainly a mystery, but the 350 fans who packed Freifogels Monday night weren't about to ask why. So I'm in- interjecting here. I think Fry's was more about a 200 people bar. There is 350. There you go. Uh, London was the first solo stop in a five-city Canadian tour for the 36-year-old singer who gained notoriety during the 60s as the girlfriend of Rolling Stone, Mick Jagger. The Wise Guys, a rockabilly trio from Little Rock, Arkansas, started off the evening with a high-energy set that was all sweat and verve, tearing through classics such as Not Fade Away as if for the first time. Faithful, whose voice has been described as a cross between Betty Davis and Tallulah Bankhead, opened with her broken in, opened with broken English from her 1979 comeback album of the same name. Her show was surprisingly laid back and optimistic, a dramatic contrast to much of her pessimistic lyrics. Faithful herself seemed relaxed and in control of the show, which was skewed toward songs from the hit Broken English album. Much of the show reflected the mood of her newest album, A Child's Adventure, which is slower and slicker than anything Faithful has done to date, such as the ballad Times Square. If Faithful seems to be mellowing, her audience isn't. Monday's crowds seem almost out of place with their screams and shouts, while Faithful seem content with a smile. Advanced tickets for the Fry Fogel show sold out in two days, according to Downtown Record Store's spokesman. And a good six hours before Faithful came on stage, there were fans lined up outside the bar to get in. And I remember that now, that when it was announced, my brother-in-law saying, I remember him getting tickets, saying, we've got to get tickets right away. This will sell out. And indeed it did uh, within two days. All right. So following this tour, she had an extended career layoff, really, which was devoting of time to getting sober, which really turned her life around and she resumed full-time recording in 1987 recasting herself as a torch singer which made a lot of sense with the excellent Hal Wilner produced Strange Weather. Now they had met via her participation uh, in his Kurt Weill project Lost in the Stars an album I love dearly it's one of my favorite albums of the 80s. Now, she followed Strange Weather a few years later with the live album Blazing Away. has a couple of studio numbers on it. Um, But she recorded it in 89, released it in 1990. Now, she came through London the second time in 1989. As she was saying earlier on, as you'll hear again, to get her chops together for the live album, which became Blazing Away, recorded in New York. And this was one of the shows that she did. And she did another uh, Canadian tour in advance, uh, of recording there. So, uh, that's when I interviewed her and I'm going to play the interview now. Unfortunately, I don't have the master recording of this. Um, they took the tape from me and it was been fairly crudely edited. And I know we talked about more stuff and it's not here, but this is all I have. I don't have the master of this one. And unfortunately it's one of those times on CHRW that happened a few times happened with Kim, a Kim Gordon interview as well, where someone was supposed to show up and engineer the interview and nobody showed. And so I had to record it on this crappy cassette deck in there, which ran slow, which meant that everything you recorded on it 
played back fast. So the tape that I have, which has been edited and they added music that I've had to try to cut out, I'm kind of sounding like I'm verging on Elvin of the Chipmunks. So I have uh, corrected the speed and pitch. I think I've done a pretty decent job. So I don't sound like, you know, um, a chipmunk. Um, although Cublet thinks I sound a little bit like Kermit the Frog in this one. It's not easy being green. So there's some real Kermit for you. Uh, so anyway, here's the short interview. It's pretty interesting. She talks about Hal Wilner, also Allen Ginsberg, also that she'd been teaching lyric writing in Colorado and also the upcoming live album. So anyway, here's the interview. You've been keeping a low public profile since the release of Strange Weather two years ago. Have there been any projects that you've been working on during that time? Well, no. <laughs> so you've just been sort of taking it easy. Um. Yes, I've just been living, you know. Now, I understand that you're going to be part of an upcoming project involving some Kurt Vile tunes. Yes, that's in December, with an orchestra and a choir. Mm -hmm. Are you going to be recording this for an album? We're hoping to be invited to do it in other places, and mm -hmm. we'll record it eventually. Mm -hmm. This is the first time we've done it, so we'll see what it's like. I mean, we've wanted to do it for a long time. Who's involved with the project? Hal Wilner, who sort of put it together, who put mm -hmm. it in strange weather, and is a friend of mine. And um, he particularly has always wanted to do this with me. But, you know, you need a real orchestra, <laughs> the whole, whole scene to do it. The mm -hmm. Royal Foundation don't let you do it unless you do it properly, mm -hmm. which I think is good. So is this something that came about with your involvement in the Lost in the Stars Kurt Vile tribute album? It came about, uh, one of the things I, ha I haven't been taking it easy, I have been working, it's just you didn't, wouldn't know about it. I've been teaching at Naropa College in Boulder in the summer, summer school, mm -hmm. two weeks, and I've been doing this now for three years, and I've been doing it with Hal. Um, and it came about sort of just before we went to do that, actually. And we, it was amazing that it just, they just asked us if we'd do it. <laughs> so, but, I mean, yes, my relationship with Howl Wilmer started with Lost in the Stars. <laughs> How did you come to be involved in the Lost in the Stars album? He asked me. <laughs> and I said I would. <laughs> and I did. And we became friends. Were you familiar with the other two tribute albums that he had put together before those, the one for Nina Rota and Thelonious Monk? I must gonna... say I wasn't, no. But mm -hmm. I, I, I heard them, he gave them to me, and I listened to them, and I thought they were great. This is the first time you've toured in many years. Why have you decided to go out on the road now? Well, um, I'm doing a live record in uh, New York in November. Mm -hmm. I need to get my charts together, oh. which I'm doing. How many dates are you playing on this tour? Like eight dates in mm -hmm. Canada. Then I'm doing three more in Paris. Mm -hmm. Then I go to New York. Mm. And then after after that, next year, we'll be doing some dates in Germany and some dates in Ireland where I live and, and probably some dates in Australia. Mm -hmm. What kind of material are you playing on this tour? Are you doing any of the Kurt Vile stuff? This is, this is with the rhythm guitarist, mm -hmm. Harry Reynolds, oh. um, who wrote Guilt and Broken English and lots and lots of my songs. Mm -hmm. No. We can't do cut bar like that. Yeah. We will do some of that stuff on the new record, which is the live record, which will be recorded in New York mm -hmm. in um, November. How do you regard your early pop hits from the 1960s today? I like it. I mean, it's not stuff I would do now, except 
years go by. I, I mean, I never kept my records and I never listened to them. I just made them and then they went out and I never sort of held on to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did happen to hear them and I, I came away feeling like, well, that was a lot of work, you know. Some of it was all right. Mm-hmm. I, I could see that, that it was quite good and it was okay, you know. Mm-hmm. It was rather sweet. It was of its time. Yes. Yeah. What kind of music are you listening to these days? I listen to blues and yeah. jazz and, and classical music. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned earlier in the interview that you're teaching uh, or have been teaching at Colorado. Now, what have you been teaching there? Lyric writing. How did that come about? Well, I'm a friend of um, Allen Ginsberg, the poet, and he mm-hmm. runs his summer school for uh, um, two weeks in uh, July. Mm-hmm. And he asked me if I would do a workshop three years ago, and I did it, and it went real well. So I've been doing it ever since in the summer. So, how did you find the teaching experience? I loved it. I love teaching. It's great fun. Well, to wrap up here, I'd once again like to remind listeners of the show tonight at Kipling's. It's going to be a real treat once again for London to uh, get to see Marianne Faithful perform, as you did uh, perform here a couple of few years ago at uh, Fry Fogel's. And I'd like to uh, thank you for taking time out to speak to us here at Radio Western. Thank you. So there you have it, my interview with Marianne Faithful in 1989. Uh, as for the ending of this evening... Marianne's faithful departed fries full of giddy goodness. And while almost everyone I knew socially at that time was there that night, the only really specific interactions I can remember were with MZ, who's been part of this series, because she had gotten there early. She hadn't, wasn't with us, and she had met up with another nicknamed Chubby Jr., which is actually a name from the time, who was, and he, it was very unusual because he was, he was sort of a big chunky guy and he was a major speed freak. So usually those two things didn't go together, hence the name. And he was kind of one of the dealers on the scene and he had just sort of gotten this windfall of acid um, that he had been personally sampling and trying to flog and apparently amid copious beerage and whatnot, uh, he indulged MZ in a few tabs so they could trip together. And by the time we got there, they were already flying the friendly skies uh, and well into their LSD merriment. And amid their merriment at the end of the evening uh, was the following activity. Now, again, Fry's was this long, narrow club. And in the middle of the club, sort of, there was the dance floor on the Eastern part of the club. Then you had the dance floor and just sort of North part, South part of the dance floor, you had stairs that went downstairs to a club that they sort of a more of a drinking club. They sometimes had on weekends. Also the bathrooms were down there and there was a partial wall that of course went along the the other three perimeters where the stairs weren't. And it was about, say, three, three and a half, four feet, three feet high, three feet high. And people would lean on it all the time. And also there would be a huge collection of empty beer bottles by the end of the night because everyone would lean up against the partial wall, drink, and watch the band. So by night's end, it was just packed with beer bottles. And someone must have knocked a beer bottle off or one of them knocked a beer bottle off and it flew down the stairs and smashed into bits 
Gales of chuckles from the tripping twosome ensued, leading CJ and MZ to pitch one empty bottle down the stairs after another, their cackling mirth increasing with the sound of each successive crashing bottle. Meanwhile, revelers carefully tried to avoid the carnage and flying glass as they made their way up and down the stairs en route to and from the bathrooms. Dangerous acquaintances indeed. Well, this wraps up my look back at this incredible show by Marianne Faithful in 1983. Up next, okay folks, this is the big one, the ultimate, the single show that I was probably most juiced to ever see when I along with my cohort, Miss Bennies, who's been in this series. She, we went to the uh, Beat R.E.M. show together. And 60,000 other fans, all of whom going absolutely freaking bananas, moseyed on down to a packed CNE exhibition stadium on the Sunday night of a sweltering Labor Day weekend in 1983 for David Bowie and his Serious Moonlight tour, of course, touring behind his worldwide smash hit album, Let's Dance, with the great Rough Trade opening the show and warming up the troops. On the exact same weekend, a year earlier, I'd seen The Clash, and in that podcast for the show, episode 18, and the blog entry for concert 12, I discuss how seeing them made for the most anticipated gig I'd attended up to that time in my life. Well, this David Bowie concert, one year later at the same venue, but utilizing the full stadium, left that prior show sense of anticipation in the dust as I finally got to see the performer who had long occupied the number one spot on my must-see list. Bowie and his 70s output made a seismic and enduring impact on my life. And in this next episode, I'll discuss this along with looking back at the actual show on that gorgeous Labor Day weekend in 1983, ending one of the most memorable summers of my young life with an unforgettable climax. And of course, also the great Rough Trade. I love Rough Trade. Another uh, act who made a big impact on me when I heard about them in the mid seventies, hearing their first album, early 77, and then through the eighties, uh, they were the opening act. I'll be talking about them as well. So tune in next time for life changing radio oddities, bamboo steamers among the Bowie masses and the most exciting show of my life with episode 29 concert. Number 22, let's dance. David Bowie with Rough Trade, CNE Stadium, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Saturday, September 3rd, 1983. And as a preview, you can also read the initial blog entry at mylifeinconcert.com, broken down into two uh, blogs, 22A, Changes, Bowie, The 70s, and Me, and 22B, The Show About the Concert. So check that out. And of course, the mylifeinconcert.com blog. Uh, I'd like to remind you to please also like, follow, subscribe, and hit the notification bell where applicable on our Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram pages. And please leave your memories of any of the gigs that I'm writing about on the platform 
of your choice. And once again, there's the two Spotify playlists for this episode, MLIC Prompt, Marianne Faithful, Time Span C90, 1964 to 2021, and MLIC Prompt, Marianne Faithful, Dangerous Acquaintances, VA's Fave Tracks, 1964 to 2021. And finally, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to tell your Toonhead friends about the sprightly and satisfying experience that is mylifeinconcert.com. I'd like to say a big thanks once more to listeners, both new and returning, for taking the time to tune in. This is your host, Various Artists, signing off, and we'll meet up at the next concert. See you then, and see you there. Bye for now.